My grandmother, during a period of her life, did not have the right to vote. The law in Texas was that idiots, imbeciles, the insane, and women could not vote. And less than one generation later, I was the governor of Texas. Now that will tell you that we have progressed. Turning outrage into outcomes. This is the Texas Blue Action Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Texas Blue Action Podcast that is hosted by Progress Texas. I am Lana Hansen, and I'll be your host again today. Um, And I'm here to have one of a conversation I'm incredibly excited about because we need more progressive women running for office in Texas and across the nation, full stop. Like, that's it. It needs to happen. But the reality is, I mean, I mean, look, we're the supermajority at the national level and at the state level. But, you know, in our U.S. House of Representatives right now, there's only 27 percent of the elected officials are women. Um, in our Texas State House right now, we have 38 female members and 111 male members. And in our state Senate, we have 10 female members and 21 male Um, representatives. And so we are completely outnumbered here. And studies have shown that when women are elected to office, we focus more on education, families, policies that help children, policies that help the environment. Um, So there's a whole slew of reasons why we need more women in office, but there's real barriers running for office. We can get real raw, raw excited about recruiting people to run for office, but what does that really mean? And how can we be better supporters of women running for office? Because those barriers can be anything from childcare to finances to a whole slew of other things. So I'm here today with an incredible slate of women that have run for office here in Texas. I've got Akila Basie, who was our 2020 candidate for House District 138. Candace Valenzuela, who was our Democratic congressional nominee for seat 24. And Stephanie Phillips, who also ran for the Texas State House in um, District 73. So thank you all for being here. And Akila, I would like to start with you and um, tell me why you decided to run for office. What was it that made you decide you want to throw your hat in the ring? And and what was your biggest fear about making that decision? All righty, sure. Well, um, thank you so much for having me join. And I feel it feels good to be uh, back into the political sphere and, and chatting. And, um, you know, I will, I'll give you the answer that's not necessarily my um, my stump speech, but um, <laughs> more more realistically is, is that when I was, um, and I'm, I'm a lawyer, and so what I see, and I do a lot of defense work and discrimination work as well, and what I saw so much was that even as much work as we were trying to do, there was just so much disenfranchisement that brought people into the court system. And so in that work, it was still we're helping an individual one at a time. And what pushed me to run was just uh, to fight for a holistic change and change that's not only necessarily that you can see in the court system, but change that we need to see in our community, in our educational system, in our employment system, and things of that sort to um, slow down the the amount of um, people we see passing through the criminal justice system. That's great. And, uh, you know, you came so close to winning that seat. You and I have talked about numbers there, and it was less than 2,000 votes. 
And, um, you know, what we've seen across the state, and this is something that we'll get into in a little bit, too, that the women like yourselves that closed those gaps in those districts, we're seeing the new congressional maps really carve up those districts because they are very fearful of the work that y'all did. Candace, I'd, I'd like to talk to you for a second because you ran and became a school board trustee first and then decided to run as a congressional candidate, which you know is a big heavy lift probably compared to a race for school board. And, and what was it that, you know, A, made you decide to do that and, and B, what was the thing that you thought I'm not sure if I can do this or or I don't have the support to get this done. You know, what would make it easier? So just like Akila, I had the opportunity in my capacity as a school board trustee to get up close and personal with a lot of of issues facing families. And as many wonderful programs you can put into schools, as much as you can raise teacher pay, as much as you can uh, make our schools a great place for for our community to feel welcome. If parents don't have a steady place to live, if they can't afford food, if they can't afford health care, uh, kids are going to be bouncing around from place to place. This was something I experienced growing up myself. I was housing insecure. I was food insecure. And I feel like m- the difficulties of my childhood are, are nothing compared to what I was seeing kids facing even before COVID. Mm-hmm. So it was imperative to me to work on some of the systemic issues so that I could better deliver for the community I was trying to serve. But there are huge barriers to entry. I, you know, Rep Presley says those who are closest to the pain uh, need to be closest to the power, but those who are closest to the pain are not closest to the money. Mm-hmm. And I sure <laughs> you know, I, I came from two uh, military parents. My mom and dad, they were enlisted. Uh, so that meant that they didn't go to college. They didn't have a wealthy network of friends to call on when I decided to run for office. I happened to be the first in my family to go to college. I went to a wonderful college and it was a great experience, but I'm also a millennial. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the millennial generation, you know, we're struggling to catch up to where our parents were. We're struggling to... Uh, find our footing. We're, we're, you know, if we have generational wealth, we're not building it. If we didn't have generational wealth, chances are we're also paying back into our our families uh, up and down, and and accruing debt. So when I am going up for this big congressional race, uh, standard advice, standard practices says that you should be able to raise one hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars from your personal network. Right. And <laughs> I see Kila laughing. That's exactly <laughs> how I felt. I'm just like, wait, what? A hundred thousand dollars. And I decided that I was going to ask my community for help because I was asking for my community to help my community. Uh, I decided that I was going to work very, very hard to, to, uh, leverage a lot of the relationships I'd I'd made, uh, you know, as a school board trustee, working with folks and delivering. But in terms of being able to call up my college chums and ask them for $2,800 in in one Mm -hmm. sitting, uh, or, you know, be able to, again, I couldn't ask my family for that kind of money. Uh, it, It wasn't happening. And that's not standard for the vast majority of people who find themselves running for office. Most folks who find themselves running for office have one, the the time, two, the money to take time off of work to put in the hours 
to run for office because it takes many. And the bigger the office, you know, when you're you're talking about, you know, 700,000 plus people, you, it's a full-time job to do the work to outreach to them. And then to have the networks on top of having the personal money, um, all of those things together are gigantic barriers to entry for people who are struggling to pay for healthcare, for people who are struggling um, as they're seeing staples in their, their, their diets go up. Uh, you know, they're just, they're just trying to get through the day to day. And those are the people that we need to see more of an office, but it's going to be very difficult if things keep progressing, or I'm going to say regressing the way that they are. 100%. I mean, I think you touched on it it's right there. That says everything that the, that our government is not representative of the people because the people that need to be in government can't afford to run for those offices. Right. Or or, you know, maybe if we took that off the table, you know, where they didn't feel the pressure to need to raise that money. I mean, I've had many friends who have thought about running for office and have sat down with consultants and consultants have said something similar, but even higher dollar amounts. And they said, I can't do it and they won't run, right? And so I, I think that conversation should be changed, right? Like we do need money to run for office, but maybe that pressure shouldn't be put on these people that are putting themselves out there to do it, especially from the beginning. You know, if there was a way to find other funding or other resources, you know, and there are some groups that um, have done that out there and do offer resources. So Stephanie, I'll pivot to you here. Um, you know, did you have any opportunity for people to make investment early on for you financially in your race? No. No, because I was running outside of an urban area. So I was running in really basically part of my county's area was like a 80-20, Republican district. So we knew going in, it's not like I was going to win. Um, but the the incumbent in this race ran unopposed and then proceeded to go start organizing anti-Muslim hate rallies in Fredericksburg to the point that he got called out by the ACLU and made the New York Times for how um, Islamophobic and racist he was being. But when we don't run candidates at all, I'm the first person who ran in this seat in 10 years. Somebody else ran then, but besides that one guy who's a wonderful person, apparently he's passed away. I'm the only person living who's, you know, Democrat who's run for this seat. And it's only been two of us in 20 years. So that means that not, there's nobody who has the experience of having run in the district. There's no existing list. There's no existing funders. There's no existing people who've helped, who've been part of a volunteer network. Nobody really, there's not the connections between the counties because if you're in an urban area, you have a small part of a larger county, maybe it's gerrymandered. The, the um, outside of the uh, urban areas, you could have, I had three counties, I had 2,300 square miles that was my district. Um, you have the guy, uh, Joe Herrera run, ran to the west of me, he had 11 counties. And so... You and you don't have a, a the the democratic donor infrastructure in the rural. You think, oh, there's a lot of money in the hill country. They're donating up ticket. They're donating 
you know, to the Senate candidates, they're donating presidential candidates, they're having fundraisers for, but they're, they're not for their local candidates. And they've lost so many times, the Democrats are demoralized. And um, they're afraid of being Democrats. So part of, I, I, I think we fail as a party, as a progressive community, when we say, oh, that area is seven, that area has got 75% Republicans, we're not going to go there. Because that tells that 25% of the population, we don't care about you. That means nobody's going to these places and articulating about why we need to fund public education or about why we need to um, have um, health care and reproductive health care that's the, you know, includes abortion care. Nobody's having these conversations. And so people have never heard the progressive or the democratic side of the argument. And a lot of the times they hear it and they say, yeah, I, I agree. But they've never met a Democrat before. Well, so, I think that, you know, Stephanie, to your point, and I would argue and push back a little bit when they say these districts are 75, 25, how do they know? Nobody's making an investment or doing any of the work out there. It could be 50-50, but we're gonna, not going to know that until we're investing in communities. And I know that, you know, from the top down, the structure is, well, we invest where we think we can win. But how are we going to ever win or flip these seats if we are not investing not only money, but people, power in those areas? Right. And so, um, you know, I, I think that's a part, you know, as, as the executive director of a grassroots organization that's trying to build from the ground up, that, that's where I get frustrated. Right. Because I'm like, we need boots on the ground everywhere, identifying these people and updating these numbers and the data so that when people like yourself do the heavy lifting of running in these seats, we can actually say to you, Stephanie, it's not 25 percent of people. It's 40. Like, that's right. something. Right. That's well, and, hopeful. And in um, for in Fredericksburg in Gillespie County, for example, I got there's about 500 people that voted for Trump and me and Chip Roy because I actually went and talked to them about issues and they were like, oh, I could I guess I could vote for that Democrat. I didn't moderate my message. I didn't, you know, pretend to be a Republican. I didn't put on a cowboy hat and and. You know, all of that stuff that we do to try to look so conservative to appeal to those people, they just, I, I talked to them and people were willing to say, vote for me over the incumbent. You know, Akila, I want to pivot, come back to you for a second and, and tell me like what you thought it was going to be like running for office versus what it was. Like, oh, what did it look like when you are in the thick of it? Okay. You know, I don't even know if I could see when I was in the thick of it. Like, I, I felt like every day and every moment was just about um, going forward. But I would say what I thought it was is I thought I was ready. Right. Um, I had gone to the trainings. Well, when I had already been involved with more community or uh, organizing things, then I had gone to the trainings. I had helped out on other campaigns. And so, you know, I thought, well, it's my campaign. I know what this is going to look like. I had no idea. Um, <laughs> it's that that saying that they say you're building a plane as you're flying it. It is very cliche, but it is also very, very true. There's a reason that they say that. And as someone who's very type A um, and 
and very anxious. That that did add a lot of stress to me. Um, and then also, you know, I know that Stephanie was talking about like, you know, we're in the more rural areas, you might not get as much assistance. Well, at the time, I was one of the more targeted races for the state house. And I will say this is that I didn't get any I didn't get very much assistance until the very end until late August. And so, yeah, there was a lot of money that poured in late August. But, you know, I ran for 18 months uh, approximately without, you know, with uh, essentially doing what Candace did and, and, and calling my family and saying, all right, I need another 25. I need another 100, guys. Okay, you know, I need another 250. Come on, come on. Um, and then coming out of a primary, spending all of, what, a whopping $20,000, um, you know, because that's what I could raise. And so, um, you know, I think we're talking about investing. I think we need to invest in candidates and races early and often. And that is probably one thing that I did not expect was how hard it was actually going to be. Because when you do have people who are not and not always right, because there are people who, have, who do have privileges and I have certain privileges, of course, as well, but who do have those privileges and can run for office with that financial backing. But a lot of times you have candidates, um, you know, like myself, like Candace, who don't have those backgrounds and are running because of what we see and because our hearts are for the community. And so we're, we're really fighting this uphill battle because we're fighting for the people in our community. But the people in our community don't have that infrastructure, that funding to assist us financially in that fight. And I, I mean, as an outsider looking in here, clearly I've, I've never run for office, but it is it's so frustrating for me to sit here and have this conversation revolve around money. Right. Like that, that money becomes the thing that is, is preventing women like y'all from having the resources that you need to get this done, because we should be so much bigger than that. What y'all could do in office is so much bigger than that and so important. But, you know, here we are, right, talking about that being the biggest barrier. And, and that just, you know, is beyond frustrating to me. I mean, how do we change it? Y'all, what do we do? And I'm just going to throw out there open. Anybody, jump on. How do we change it? <laughs> Go ahead, Candace. So talking about, and, and it's it's a dirty word for some folks because they don't quite understand how election money works, but publicly financed elections or, uh, you know, just elections where the money isn't necessarily coming from what an individual candidate can raise or not entirely from uh, that much money. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're talking about uh, elections uh, and, and folks just getting money from uh, corporate interest. And that happens a lot more at the state level because there are no contribution limits in Texas. Let me repeat, there are no contribution limits in Texas. That means that people like Ken Paxton can go into a room and have a lunch and somebody can drop half a million dollars into his campaign account. And it's happened. And Mm -hmm. it makes it impossible for folks that may better represent the people to get in and and have a voice. Uh, But what folks don't understand when it comes to money in, in campaigns, they think of it as candidates somehow having money and living off of it and, and, and enjoying it, but that all of that money is communication. All of that money is putting your face in front of them and, and getting through all of the distractions in their daily lives to let them know that you're there to work for them. And mm-hmm. when you're talking about progressive candidates, uh, you're, you're talking about folks that come out of, uh, you know, being public defenders or being in the nonprofit sector or doing other other jobs that are intended to save the world. Teachers, lots of teachers, they're not going to come uh 
from those sectors where they can just take a lot of money. And some of them come up and they do, but it may not necessarily always be for the right reasons. Uh, it mm -hmm. was one of the reasons I rejected corporate PAC money. And I, I, I took a lot of guff for that. Uh, from folks who have been raising money in these spaces, they said, you know, you're a woman of color. Did you know that you're a woman of color and it is so much harder for you. And we see that it's so much harder for you and we see how you're working and you really need to rethink that corporate pack pledge, you know, older members than me who are like, okay, you're kind of progressive, but we can, we can look past that, but maybe think a little bit about this corporate pack thing. And at the end of the day, it was really nice not to wonder what one company or another company would think. I mean, I want mm -hmm. their, their their jobs and I want uh, to help them to, to grow and, and be economically powerful, but I don't want that to be at the expense of my constituents. And I can make decisions like those. I can work with businesses as a partner instead of as a dependent if I reject corporate PAC money. And I think when we, we start to reject corporate PACs, uh, you know, when we're, we're talking about uh, the organization in Citizens United, mm -hmm. it, you know, get, it's, it's a super PAC and a PAC, and it's working very hard to get rid of itself. <laughs> it's right. working hard to make it so that these PACs uh, don't speak as much as voters. And we have to look at, at a bunch of different ways to bring democracy back to the people because we've drifted far away. I, I agree. And so um, I'm curious, y'all, in, in your races, which, you know, both, you know, were, were fairly high dollar at the end. What do you feel like was the biggest waste of money? If you were to run again, what would you not spend money on? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> I laugh because there's so much. <laughs> right. I mean, I just, it's, you know, for people that are thinking about doing it right. Like, let's set them up for success. Like, don't spend your dollars here. I mean, you know. I think that that's really hard to say about a race because you don't know until you're in the race what money was wasted and what money was not wasted. Yes. Um, I absolutely believe that there were uh, consultants who took um, advantage of um, the amount of money that was coming in, you know, and it, we, you know, it was my first race, so you don't really know. So I would definitely, I say this, especially to women, uh, vet your consultants and go with the consultants that you trust. Um, one thing that I learned and, you know, and it's in my practice and in, in, in my career is that a lot of times when it gets to the end of things here is that there is no work-life balance towards the end of a campaign. Um, and so I need a consultant that I can talk to at 10 o'clock because something happened, right? Um, I need just, I need my, I need someone on Saturday, and I did find a lot of that, right? Is that it was? Oh, we'll, we'll schedule a time. Let's let's put something on the books. I'm like, we don't have time to put something on the books. The time is now. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. right. <laughs> because they're spreading lies across TV now, so we can't wait two weeks to make the game plan because that's election day. But I, a lot of times that that happened, and so especially for women, I would say talk to other women who've ran campaigns, whether they've won or lost, that you respected and that you admired, um, that you like how they ran them. And it's something I was talking to Stephanie about is that she, you know, we were talking about helping other uh, candidates who might not have had a lot of money. 
And she said, well, I know you had a lot of money. I said, no, I didn't. <laughs> I had a lot of money after August, right? I didn't have a lot of money before August. And so, um, but I saw what I did was I looked at a lot of things on my own, right? A lot of crafty stuff, uh, using different templates, um, things like Canva, things of that on my own. And then when people said, oh, you know what? No, 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 we'll do that. You just, it just cost us $750 a week to do it. Then I said, well, no, thank you. Because for me, it's free. So I will do that myself and not have to, <laughs> you know what I mean? So things like that, that you can do yourself, do them um, and get to the nitty gritty of it. Because a lot of times you'll hear people say, oh, a candidate's not supposed to do that. A candidate's only supposed to worry about this. But get in the nitty gritty and be about your race. I think that that is so important um, that you run your race and you're not only just raising money for someone else to run your race. I mean, I think those are really great points. And, um, you know, there's two things that, um, well, first I want to pivot and say to Stephanie or ask Stephanie, there are a lot of barriers that aren't just money. And, and you know, your race specific being in a more rural area, I think is is really a testimony to that. So talk about some of the other things that you needed to like jump in a race that you didn't feel like were accessible. And I know you're trying to help make a difference for others in that too. So please tell us about it. Yeah. Okay. So two things. One, um, myself and another candidate, former candidate, Claire Barnett, we both ran twice in adjacent districts. We're putting together a uh, 527 organization called Blue Horizon Texas. And the goal is going to be to help people, especially outside of the urban areas, especially maybe your non-traditional candidates, to run for office, to figure out how to solve some of these problems without it just being about needing someone to write a check. And we there's a disconnect because we, I think, as, as, a, as a larger democratic progressive community, feel like people should be running up and down the ballot. We should have candidates in Lubbock and Lufkin and Beaumont, and we feel that now. We didn't used to feel that so much, you know, and now we really, that's, like what we want to have happen. We also feel like it shouldn't be the same kind of candidate who maybe ran 20, 25 years ago, like a kind of nice, rich white guy who um, is maybe not as racist and sexist as everybody else, which was sort of our typical Democratic candidate, nothing against those guys, you know. But um, we now we have this beautiful idea of we want moms, we want people of color, we want... um, we want working people, we want teachers, we want LGBTQ, but we haven't had, we, we've had a radical transformation in who we think the candidate should be and where they should run. We haven't had a radical transformation in what does the campaign infrastructure look like and what does the support network look like. So we're continuing to reproduce campaigns that are basically about the campaign as a product and that product person is supposed to sit there, sit your ass down, excuse me, and raise money all day so that you can build a advertising team around you who's going to sell you better than the other guy. If you're, you know, one of us, you maybe have um, a whole, you maybe don't have money, but like maybe you can figure out Canva and you can figure out graphics. Maybe your real need is not somebody who can write you a big check. It's somebody who'll sit with your kids so that you can be on Zoom calls. Or maybe someone could lend you a car so that you could drive all over your big district and not put 20,000 miles on, on your car, which in our bigger districts, that's what we end up doing. And, and if we're, so that is really the goal of the new organization is to look at who the candidates are and what the districts are 
what the matches are and what the actual needs are instead of just the answer to every campaign is money and consultants. So we're hoping to solve some problems and make it possible for more people to run without being just overwhelmed, stressed out, um, losing money, spending more money than we should, or completely neglecting your family to the point that it becomes a problem. (laughs) That's really an important point. You know, we've discussed multiple times how running for office is not um, a part-time job, right? And so that's a barrier too for women that are parents um, you know, and if and if you're not financially in the situation where you can self fund, um, you're working a job and being a mother and trying to run for office. You know, so you know, I think that infrastructure um, and the value in that infrastructure, whether it's support with childcare, support with um, clothing that maybe you can't afford, so that you look the part when you're at events, whatever that looks like is is massively important to lifting up women and, and having them see greater success in running for office. Mm-hmm. Although I'll chime in there. Unfortunately, if you happen to run in a federal race and somebody wants to help you out with clothes, uh, it's very difficult for that to happen without it going into campaign finance issues. I know that there, was, there were a couple of organizations who were offering to dress candidates and buy them clothes. And, you know, I in so I when I announced for Congress, it was in my post-pregnancy body. <laughs> so I needed clothes. I mean, I'd, I'd had a baby uh, a couple of months before I'd, I'd started running. Mm-hmm. So I, I applied for this and they said, you're wonderful. Of course, we want you in our clothes, but it's illegal. <laughs> so we're really sorry about that. Uh, and this, I think this also goes back to talking about federal campaign finance laws and how they apply to women and how they hurt women. Uh, but there are a lot of different barriers to entry. Maybe lending clothes <laughs> might be a good way to go about it so that sure. you don't you know, get into that situation. Uh, but it's 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 crazy how many things suddenly jump in front of you, how many things you suddenly need to spend money on when you start running for office. And just going back to your question about how I would spend my money differently, I think I was very lucky to have one, the experience of having run for school board and having my hands in absolutely every aspect of it. Uh, but when I started to run for Congress, I needed to sit down and gather resources before giving everybody my money. And there were lots of consultants who from jump were just like, start paying me right now. And you'll never actually have to do this campaign. I'll just do it all for you. And that was not the kind of race I wanted. But it was also Mm -hmm. the kind that was the the best way to not have a race by the time the primary happens, because you're broke several times over. And you've gone through all your staff because you can't pay them because you're paying two consultants. It's, it's, really bad. <laughs> I, I, I wish I had, I was, I had a more articulate way to, to say that, but it, it really hurts candidates who get bamboozled by folks who come in and they talk quickly and they say, you need this and you need this and you need this and you need this. And you don't need all of those things all at once, all at mm-hmm. first. Some of those things you build into your campaign as, as the structure tends to build. And the, the biggest thing that you need to start with at the very beginning is your, your core group of volunteers and just gather your finances so that you, you'll be able to, to have that machine going so that you'll be able to pay people later. 
Sure, and I would imagine that as you're doing that, and, and if you're not able to abide by the advice that you're being given as a new candidate and not being sure you know, of, 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 of what you're doing, right? So really relying on what they're saying. Probably, you know, when if you can't get that in line, I'm guessing makes you feel sort of insecure in what you're doing. And like, am, am I not really able to do this? And, you know, my hope would be that we could find a way to empower people, you know, even though they might not be able to hit those metrics right away, right? That um, there's ways to be successful without doing that traditional outline would be my hope moving forward, you know, in, in seeing more support for women. The view of money is so skewed in that world. And it was very hard for me, again, scaling upward. I, at one point, I think my very first quarter that I was, I was raising money, I raised $80,000. That's three months. I never personally made $80,000 in my life, and you know, in a year, much less in three months. And the way that analysts looked at it, well, she's she's kind of broke, but she's doing okay. And it's, it, 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 it is beyond my reckoning. And, you know, at one point I raised more money than any house I'd ever lived in in my whole life. And mm -hmm. it was just like nothing to people around me, um, at least in on, in campaign world. Every there, I try to stay in contact with as many normal people as possible so that I could talk this through. Because if you don't, you just start to lose your sense of what the real world is like. Mm -hmm. Well, and probably why you got into it in the first place, you know, might start to get a little convoluted, I can imagine, in that um, situation. And so I, I know we're running over time, but I've just enjoyed talking with you all so much. And you've given us, you know, such incredible information that I do have to ask a couple other things while I have you here. And, you know, one is um, I would love to know, you know, if y'all would think about doing it again. Like, you know, are you still interested in running for office? Did, you know, not being successful last year, but coming so close, uh, make you think you wanted to get in again or make you think like, maybe this isn't for me. So Akila, I'll, I'll let you answer first. Well, you know, one thing that you just said that I've actually kind of been grappling with this past year is that we weren't successful. And I think we have to look at what we consider to be successful per- 100%, yes, thank you and for that. So, um, yes. Cause I look at it in House District 138, we bought out 7,000 more Democratic voters than the last highest rates that they ever had. And to me, finding that in the suburbs is, is, a, is a success, you know? We had right. people who um, were just excited and getting involved and, you know, are now with me working on, on uh, organi organizing with like blue action dims and, and things of that sort because of the campaign that we ran. So that's success as well. And so, um, you know, when I look at that, is it hard when you look at that number on election night and you're like, wow, yes, it is very hard. <laughs> okay, it is. And it's not going to get easier. I'm like, you all know that in the weeks to come, especially when you start seeing what those people who we were running against are doing and what we were trying to prevent. It makes it even harder. But I think about that and I say, if it was worth doing and trying before, it's worth trying again. Um, mm -hmm. Now, you know, one thing I say is that I, I don't want to be a great candidate forever, right? <laughs> Eventually want to be elected. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I absolutely plan on running again. 
Um, but when that time is, I am not sure yet. But, you know, if God says the same, I will at some point be back on the ballot. I think that's such a good point because you did move the needle so much. And Candace, I know that your congressional race was the closest in the state with only 4,500 votes as as the vote gap. And, and that is huge. And again, to what we talked about at the beginning that I wanted to circle back to, but we're sort of running out of time, is that it is those districts that they're taking the most time to carve up now because of the progress that you all made. And you're right, Akila. I'm so glad you corrected me on that. That is success, right? That is moving the ball forward. Everything is incremental and, and we cannot forget that. So um, Candace, do you think you'll do it again? Uh, this is a question I've been getting since November of 2020. Somehow people have been asking me, so are you ready yeah. to get started? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the, the short answer is, unfortunately, I've been elected to public office before and I was able to get my food service members and janitorial staff a living wage. It wasn't as high as I wanted, but I still got it for them. Was able to put STEM academies and fine arts academies in our elementary schools and prepare infrastructure for 20 years into the future. I'm kind of addicted to effective governance. If I hadn't had that experience, if I hadn't been able to, to push progressive policies forward to help people and, and help make their lives better, I would have walked away from this. I wouldn't have started this. This is ridiculous. <laughs> but given that I, I understand how much it, it how, how much, how gratifying it is to be someone's voice, uh, to pull them, to bring them to the table with me when I sit down, I'm going to do it again. And now when that is an open question. In what capacity? That is an open question. Uh, you know, right now, I, I actually have a pretty good life. Uh, you know, I, some people sat down with me and they said, you know, you've got this husband. He likes you. And two <laughs> children. You. They seem yeah. to like you. Why are you doing this? And I mean, the answer to that question is, you know, I have been on the other side of this. You know, I've been food insecure. I've been housing insecure. I grew up with a single mom who was a veteran and didn't get all of the support that she needed. And I, you know, as much of a, a soccer mom as I am, as competitive as I am, I want my kid to win because he was playing on a level playing field with everyone else. I don't want him to win because nobody has soccer shoes. Nobody has the ability to, to come out and, and really compete. So as long as there are kids that, that, don't have their basic needs met, as long as there are families that are suffering, as long as we need healthcare, as long as we need to protect our environment, you're not getting rid of me. Well, good. I mean, and if you ever start to step out, we're going to be calling you again, reminding you, because I think that, uh, you know, the truth is we're all, you know, itching for, for people like y'all to run for these seats, to, to end up in these seats, to, you know, affect that change. And I think that once you step into activism and that time of work, there's there's never turning a blind eye, blind eye to it again. You know, once you're committed to this type of change and you start to learn about um, how powerful it is and the work that needs to be done, it's impossible to to ignore it from there. And so, okay, Stephanie, what about you? Do you think you'll do it again? Maybe. Not now, not this cycle. Uh, I, I'm really committed to organizing right now. What what really 
moved me was how many people where we'd knocked on their door and they're like, a Democrat has never knocked on my door before. And a Democrat has never, one, one time we, we were doing actually a phone bank training and people were so scared. They, nobody in the room had ever made a phone call before. My partner was my campaign manager. They, they say never do that. But that's, you know, we didn't have a lot of people who were, um, had run campaigns or anything. So Kathy was my campaign manager and she's running the phone bank training. Very first call. So answers the phone. They said, you're a Democrat? And, and they said, hey, everybody. And they, they had company. And they said, hey, everybody, there's a Democrat on the phone calling about politics. And so we had a bunch of people on speakerphone because we had trainees in New Braunfels who've never made a phone call before. And they're calling people who have never had a Democrat call them before. And they started cheering. So the very first phone bank in a, in a we're scared to call our scary neighbors phone bank training, they were cheering like, yay, you're calling. And I, I would, that would happen. I mean, block walking or ranch walking, you know, we, I would call ahead and say, hey, can I come deliver a sign? You know, end up giving a sign to someone across the street too. And they'd call up to the house, honey, there's a Democrat at the door. And, and the whole, there was one place out near Bernie, the whole family came out to take a picture with me because a Democrat had never been there before. And I think that's why we lose the, the rural areas so badly. When people say we don't show up, they really mean we don't show up. And um, we've done some phone calling. It was, again, Kathy was doing phone calling, and um, she was talking. I, I heard her out on the back porch. She's talking to somebody for like a half an hour, and I thought maybe a friend had called. And it turns out it was a Hispanic woman in like um, uh, Willow City, Fredericksburg area, and um, something like 10, 10 family members living all around, you know, some like trailers kind of living all together. And um, they had 10 registered voters who had never, most of them had never voted. And because somebody had tried and been turned away around an ID issue or somebody had been tried and then they told. So they were very worried that they were going to get in trouble, that something was going to happen to them. And um, she stayed on the phone, talked them all the way through it, where to go, you know, maps and everything. Well, I found out this, I ran the second time and we got a sign request from the same address to come and bring a sign out. And so one of my volunteers went, went visited that same woman and across the street from her, um, you know, family compound was a massive Trump sign. The, the guy across the street, when you're in the rural areas, that's your neighbor is, is somebody with Confederate flags or Trump flags or or all of that stuff. And so it's frightening. But when you can go and find the Democrats, they're there, but they're they're hiding because they think they're all alone. So you can really change the vibe of an area by getting a few people, you notice like one person puts the sign out, then their neighbor does too, or the person across the street. But it's the fear factor is so such a big deal, way bigger than issues. It's the fear factor. Sure. And and that has honestly been the story of the type of organizing that Blue Action does. Every group that has started a chapter here has said they've knocked a door and that person has said, I am a Democrat in this neighborhood but there aren't any others here when we've just been three doors down and that person said the same thing. And so that's why we have to continue to be knocking every door and connecting with every voter because 
Once we empower people with the knowledge that they are not alone, they're going to be ready to show up and do the work. And, you know, so I always try to wrap up these shows with some action items. And, you know, now that we have everybody's attention, um, you know, there are things that you can do to to help further support these candidates. And I hope everybody walks away from here really thinking about what it means to elect progressive women, what it means to ask them to run as a candidate and how you really can support them, whether that's financially or through childcare or through knocking a door. We need everybody doing the work. And, you know, also reach out and support orgs that do support women running for office. Make them a priority. Men will stand up and run for office whether they're qualified or not. Women need to be asked to do it, and they generally need to be asked seven times, and that's bullshit. We need to have support in place that they will just know that they can show up and be supported. And then support groups like Blue Action Democrats. We're out there knocking the doors and building infrastructure so that when these incredible candidates show up and decide to run for office, we're there with good data, good volunteers, and can help them get out the word about the good work that they plan to do. And so thank you, Candace, Akila, Stephanie. This has been great. Um, I'm so thankful to call you all friends and so proud of the work that every one of you are doing. And, and thanks again to Progress Texas uh, for hosting this podcast. Um, but I hope you all have a great week and that you'll join us again next week. Definitely. Well, it's so good to see everyone, too. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you all. so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Texas Blue Action Podcast, a production in affiliation with Progress Texas. Texas Blue Action is founded on progressive grassroots action, focused on year-round neighborhood organizing and committed to building sustainable democratic infrastructure in Texas. We turn out the voters that the Texas GOP fears the most. Production by me, Chris Mosier. Theme music generously provided by James McMurtry. Join Texas Blue Action at blueactiondems.com and also on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you again next week.